Welcome to Trivial Context, the podcast where we answer some of the most popular questions in trivia and help each other learn a little more along the way. I'm Sean Riley with my co-host, Brooke Riley. And we're joined by a very special guest today, Thomas Riley. How many Rileys does it take to record a podcast? I would say at least two. You would say one, Thomas. Why is that? Oh, I have my own podcast. Whoa, Thanks for asking. That's a lot of experience. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I have three episodes with a bunch more planned. Uh, it's called The American Southwest. And I have a website called TheAmericanSouthwest.com. Yeah, I saw on Instagram today some very cool stickers that are now yeah. for sale. I was considering getting some. To support the business. <laughs> and I uh, just got all of them, yeah. even more than it's I family discount, see. 100% yeah. off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> on this podcast, we each research a topic based on one of the six trivia categories randomly chosen last week. To decide who reports first, we will draw a card from Trivial Pursuit, and whoever gets the answer correct of the correct category can choose. Which of these household appliances was invented first? Dishwasher. Electric vacuum cleaner or microwave oven? I'd say vacuum. Absolutely vacuum. Ooh, I'm going to say the microwave. That would be World War II. It was the dishwasher? We all failed. Yeah, that's pretty surprising. We'll just do do one more. One more real quick. Okay. Which head of state was colorfully labeled Pooty Poot by George W. Bush, who had a penchant for nicknaming both friends and foes? I would say Vladimir Putin. Yeah. Oh, good job. Bush dubbed Democrat Senator Barbara Boxer a heavyweight name, Ali. Hmm. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Would you like to go first? Would you like me or Brooke to go first? Oh, I'll finish it up. You finish it up? Yeah, I'll finish it up. Okay. Why don't? I will go first. <laughs> okay, so I will start with my question. Which American Southwest town is involved in what has been described as cosmic Watergate? That would be Roswell. Yeah. New Mexico. Roswell, New Mexico is my report topic. So, before I studied this, I didn't know anything about, like, what actually happened at Roswell outside of the few episodes of X-Files in season two that talk about it. Uh, Do you know when the X-Files debuted, Thomas, the first year? 92. 93. 93. Yeah, that'll come up later. So, my report is gathered from official reports given by the U.S. Air Force. This is the facts as we now know them. In June of 1947, a crash occurred on Foster Ranch, which, by the way, is really not close to Roswell. It was... 30 miles north. Yeah. I've been to it. (laughs) July 4th, 1947, so just shy of a month later, also Independence Day, rancher Mac Brazel found some wreckage. He was in the middle of nowhere, New Mexico, which is really in the middle of nowhere. All of New Mexico is in the middle of nowhere. (laughs) He had no radio or anything else. So it was reported that when he first found the wreckage, he gathered a bit of what was there and threw it out of the way, like under a bush or something. When he got back into town, he heard all the hubbub of strange sightings in the Foster Ranch area. So, in 1946, there was a huge UFO sighting explosion, right? Everybody was seeing UFOs. In the last six months of 46 alone, sorry, 47 alone, there were over 300 reported sightings of UFOs in America. Uh, after hearing that what he saw was definitely a UFO, he went back, grabbed it, and reported it to the sheriff and gave it over to the sheriff. We've entered the part of the story where you can see how muddled the narrative becomes. It's this person tells this person tells this person, and so on, which I won't go over every instance of. But just know two things ultimately happen. One, number one, Roswell 
and the surrounding area's newspapers report, quote, the RAAF, Roswell Air Force something, I'm not sure, captures flying saucer on ranch in Roswell region, end quote. And number two, the sheriff reports it up, the chain of command, which eventually gets to General Ramey. Ramey concludes it is a crashed weather balloon. The wreckage is primarily wooden beams, some sort of cloth, and some sort of metal. That is pretty much the end of the story for decades. And uh, Roswell is a great town to visit. Who here has been to Roswell? Me. Not the native New Mexican. Not the native wow, Mexican. not the New Mexican. Wow. I, it's great. It has a great UFO museum, which is ridiculous and awesome. I yeah. know their uh, McDonald's is... It's green, yeah. And all yeah, their streetlights like a... have alien heads. Yeah. Not yeah. far from Roswell, on the other side of the mountains, on the other side of Ruidoso, on the other side of Alamogordo, on the other side of White Sands, mm-hmm. there is... So, it's not so far. New Mexican. Yeah. It's just like seriously parallel west. Mm-hmm. There is a museum... For army, rockets, and aircraft. I've been to it. It's up in mm-hmm. the Oregon Pipe Mountains. Mm-hmm. I think it's the Oregon Pipe Mountains. I don't know. Um, but it's the ones visible from like White Sands to yeah. the west. And in that museum, you, you walk around this giant field and they just have all these prototypes and all of these rockets and all this cool stuff. There is a UFO. Wow. There is a spinning disc that they attempted and it, it just would spin out of control. But they put people in it and they tried to <laughs> actually make it like fly. Yeah. And I was like, wow, that's, that's, that's crazy. Yeah. And the first atomic bomb was detonated. Yeah. Yeah. At Trinity right there in the White Sands. I will say, like, as a native New Mexican, when people find that out, they think of two things. Meth. Mm-hmm. And, and aliens. And Blue aliens. Man. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. like Breaking Bad meth mm-hmm. and uh, aliens. So yeah. that, that's fun to just constantly I think growing up in Sorry, New Mexico I made me stereotype. like not into aliens <laughs> yeah. because I was just like mm. over Inundated. the yeah also turned me off of meth so yeah that's mm. good yeah. Sorry. yeah enter Stanton Friedman is physicist and UFOlogist or ufologist begins <laughs> to drum up interest in these events again in 1978 he calls it Cosmic Watergate <laughs> This is the era of the story where most eyewitnesses come forward, both civilian and military, to share what they remember. So at this point, there's two theories. The first is it is a weather balloon. The second is the government was involved in cleaning up an alien crash site. The crash was believed to be caused by high-power radio signals messing with the spaceship's navigation. There are many sub-theories within this, each more ridiculous than the last. So, at this point, I want to pull you guys. Believers, skeptics, molders, scullies, what do you think? I do not believe that it was a UFO. No, it was a UFO. I don't believe it was extraterrestrial. What does that mean? Alien. Oh, un- unidentified flying yeah. object? Yeah. It was by definition a UFO. Yeah, I think but... it was a UFO. I don't think it was extraterrestrial. Yeah. But I do think they're extraterrestrials. Did you not see the Pentagon's newest release like three days ago? No. People have seriously gotten impregnated and burned from radiation over 50 years of compiling data the Pentagon released it from Freedom of Information Act two days wow. ago. Wow. Yeah. So people have been burned by radiation and they say the only way, like, if that were possible, they must have been near the engine of the craft because that's the only way to get burned by something leaving and people have gotten pregnant. <laughs> Unexplained. Wow. Just like Scully. Yeah, just like Scully. Yeah. That's really interesting. Wow. Yeah. yeah, I want to go back to X-Files like to rewatch it because that was a pretty boring season for me but knowing all this uh well i haven't gotten into it yet but 
knowing what I now know, it sounds a lot more interesting. Two times ago, I rewatched it. I skipped every Alien episode and really did a disservice. You got to watch the Alien. Ones. The Alien, yeah. The whole, the that's full, the, that's full the overarching. Yeah, I just skipped them all because I was like, yeah. But yeah. no, it was it's better with them. Okay. Till the end. Have you watched anything X Files ever, Brooke? I don't think so. Okay. Is that the one of the first episodes? The guy like gets bombed, or the world gets bombed, and that guy's in a library and he gets to read. Is that X Files? That's uh, that is a uh, Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone. Yeah. Thank okay. You. No, I have not seen X Files. <laughs> After what I am about to tell you, I personally also huge skeptic. I believe in aliens. I don't think they're on Earth, really. I'm not sure, but. After what I say, I was turned more towards a molder, more towards a believer, because I, I want to believe. Mm-hmm. I 1994, to the Air Force, after 15 years, finally comes forward to admit there was in fact a cover-up. But not for aliens. It was just a top-secret project called Project Mogul. Uh, basically, is a air balloon that was meant to be sent up into the air, and just like how we can sense or, or record explosions underwater happening through like the vibrations of the water they were hoping to when a uh, surface-to-air missile launches uh, a a warhead launches to be able to pick it up with one of these air balloons and stop it because this is 1947 the very beginning of the cold war people were frantic about the atomic bomb and the future that they had to live in so 94 is also a few years after the soviet union collapsed and is then able to you know, come forward with all their top secret stuff. As for the evidence, it has been said, no other conspiracy has been so thoroughly investigated and so thoroughly debunked. As far as physical evidence goes of extraterrestrials, none has ever been found. There have been two archaeological digs on Foster Ranch. The only finding was that there was, in fact, a crash. In the end, skeptics wonder how the military could have been so absolute in their cleanup and subsequent cover-up. Believers wonder how there can be such consistent testimonies among the hundreds of witnesses. We're talking about 600 very uh, similar witness eyewitness accounts. So uh, at the end, I don't, I don't think there's any aliens. To go back to X-Files for hopefully the final time. Uh, <laughs> 94 is when this came to light and 94 is when the second season came out. So I think it's really interesting that, yeah, the uh, second season, they go to Roswell, or uh, Fox Mulder goes, goes to Roswell and, mm-hmm. and talks to like, Native Americans about aliens and all this stuff, and it's because it was topical at the time. It was a rock quarry in Vancouver that they painted all red. Yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> There's way too many trees. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> I've been, I haven't been to Roswell, but I have been to New Mexico, and it does not look like that. You've been to like the most tree... Invested part of New Mexico? Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. Yeah, Ruidoso's. Uh, what national forest up there I forget uh, but yeah it's oh. covered oh Lincoln National Forest mm. it's covered well I-40 does not look like that no <laughs> no yeah alright that is the end of my report thank you so much for listening to my southwest American yeah. Southwest I can't yeah. do it <laughs> there, after the fall of the Soviet Union there were declassified documents and we later declassified the exact same documents from our side but we have missile silos like in uh, South Dakota mm-hmm. they were shut off they were completely shut off by a flying saucer. In the Soviet Union, when at the fall of the Soviet Union, they had declassified documents saying same thing happened to them, to their missile silo sites. Sometimes they would see something in the sky and then everything would shut down, including like the ability to launch the missiles, which is almost impossible. Yeah. Wow. And that was and so we then wondered somebody did a Freedom of Information Act that happened here in the US. And it did. 
That was really cool. So I don't know what the aliens are. Maybe they're future humans. Maybe they're just aliens. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe they're like maybe we shouldn't let these these guys blow each other up. I don't know. Yeah, I think I appreciate. I think the aliens. term <laughs> like what we think as aliens you don't, does not exist. You don't think the big bug-eyed giant green-headed little yeah, man? Yeah, I don't think that's what. No, aliens probably are. I agree. I agree. They probably look like octopuses or something. Mm. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Or us. Like, <laughs> or I think, us. I think they yeah. look like us. Yeah. yeah. All right, Brooke. My contribution to this Southwest theme starts with this trivia question. Who was born in Wisconsin, but is most associated with New Mexico? Oh, is it Georgia O'Keefe? Yes. Really? Yeah. Oh, wow. I wanted so badly, like, all of the questions I was thinking of, like, so gave away who it was. Like, who's the most famous painter from New Mexico? No, or, I mean, that, that. Yeah. Like, I've been to Ghost Ranch. It's a really cool place. Yeah. Honestly, the basis of my question was, who is a famous New Mexican? Well, there's only really one. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. and I thought the the Wisconsin tie-in was would fun. Be nice. Yeah. yeah. So for someone just moving from Wisconsin, yeah. Thomas, I spent my literally last right day, now. <laughs> day in Wisconsin, snaps all around. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So born November fifteenth, eighteen eighty-seven, in wow. Sun Prairie, Wisconsin, Georgia Toto O'Keefe. I tried to look up what like if Toto was a family name or something. Could not find. She was the second of seven children. Her family had a wheat farm, but she was always born like very artistic and very sure of herself. Farm life encouraged her to have like an early love of nature. And throughout her like childhood and going to school and stuff, she just like really stood out from like she knew Wisconsin was not where she was going to be. <laughs> we all do. I know the feeling. <laughs> yeah. I think we all 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 feel that way. Like, 10 years is too long. Yeah. <laughs> So once she graduated, she moved to Chicago to study at the Art Institute there. She's moving in the right direction. Yeah. She was top of her class, but uh, towards the end, she contracted typhoid and was out for about a year. Wow. Then she went to New York and took classes at the Art Students League, and that's where she learned realist, the realist style of painting. She also won a prize for her dead rabbit with copper pot while at the school. Nice. Yes. I love her the names that she gives her. Her paintings? Yes. So while in New York, she started gaining a little bit of momentum. And she was hanging around a lot of artists. And one of those artists, or art studio, was called 291, run by photographers Alfred Steiglitz and Edward Steichen. Don't know if I pronounced those correctly. This influence of photography and more modern, avant-garde, European styles really added to her, like, art, her style influenced her, I guess. A little backstory. When she was a teenager, her family actually moved from Wisconsin to Virginia, but she stayed behind for school and lived with her aunt. But now, her mother was bedridden with tuberculosis and her father had gone bankrupt, so she had no way of going to school. So she moves to Virginia to be with her family, decides to go back to Chicago. Oh, sorry. She went to Chicago, became a commercial artist, doing nothing creative, hmm. just kind of trying to make money. Eventually goes to Virginia, where she teaches at Columbia University and is exposed to even more styles of art, which again are just like adding... To the, her repertoire. Mm-hmm. And she starts to become more abstract. She bounced around teaching between Texas and South Carolina. 
and while she was in South Carolina, she mailed some of um, some charcoal drawings of her new abstract style to a friend, who then showed it to Alfred Steiglitz, who from before, mm-hmm, who owns two ninety one, without her permission. He had like a little show in his studio, and when she found that out, she went to New York to like confront him. Mm-hmm. When she got there, she realized it was actually like a pretty cool thing. <laughs> he decides to, yeah, yeah I don't cool. know why she yeah. she like went there to be like, why did you do this? Because really, he's helping her. She's a mm-hmm. very young artist in the 1920s, helping like her or 19 mm-hmm. 1910s. Yeah. Anyways. They get to talking. He finds her a place to live, promises her shows, and financially supports her. So all she has to do is draw. They end up falling in love. It's a little bit awkward because he's uh, 23 years older than her. Oh, oh. And married. Probably married. Oh, whoa. (laughs) So uh, he ends up getting a divorce, and in 1924, they marry. And it's, it's a pretty good union. He's a photographer. She becomes his muse. He's a famous studio owner and just promotes the heck out of her. So she starts gaining a lot of momentum. Things are looking looking up. This is when she starts getting into flowers as well, which I think is what she's most known oh, yeah. for, are yeah. her floral paintings. This is what she said about it. So this is a direct quote. In a way, nobody sees a flower. Really, it is so small. We hadn't time. And to see takes time, to have a friend takes time. If I could paint the flower exactly as I see it, no one would see what I see, because I would paint it small like the flower is small. So I said to myself, I'll paint what I see, what the flower is to me, but I'll paint it big and they will be surprised into taking time to look at it. Like, again, if you know Georgia O'Keeffe, you know... Very colorful, very... Yeah, very vibrant. And I mean, it really is like a zoomed up picture. Mm -hmm of what a flower is. That's that photography <laughs> influence that her husband has of like angles and zooming mm. and all that. This is how she becomes known as the mother of American modernism. So she really creates this new style of art. And for the un- uninitiated into the art world, what is her style? Is this abstract modernism? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, just modernism, I think. Because okay. she, she combines realism with the abstract. I'm not an art person either. I will say that. So, but nope. that—that's like my understanding. Yeah, Thomas, you paint. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Okay. Did that make sense? What I just said. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Oh, we did it. <laughs> no, really. it makes sense. I just—it's like you're not as familiar with the. Yeah, jokes. I like to ride motorcycles, but I can't take it apart. Oh. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. I like to paint. Well, I don't know. I, yeah. I only took like nine courses on art history. Okay. In college. Wow. That's, that's, I don't remember any of it, obviously. Yeah. yeah. I took intro into humanity, and that's about no, as far okay. as I got. Yeah. I did... I took glass blowing in high school. Okay. So, I was like, I have been to the... A few years ago, I went to the Georgia O'Keeffe Museum. Where is that? It's in Santa Fe. Oh, okay. 10 out of 10 recommend. Oh, I'll be in Santa Whoa. Fe to Saturday. Yeah. Go. That's All pretty right. cool. That's really cool. And then you can rip this apart in your head. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I think you should listen to this episode, like walking through it, like one of those walkthrough tours. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Georgia O'Keeffe, mm-hmm. blah, 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 her history. Yeah. That's I could just replay history. this conversation. Just, too. Oh, yeah. yeah, that's true. I am here. You are, you are part of it. Yeah. <laughs> I guess you don't have to listen to it because you are listening. I'm living it right now. 
All right. So by 1927, <laughs> she was one of the most famous artists in America, which is pretty cool because at that time, like the industry is totally male dominated as are most industries. So she's also kind of a symbol for like feminism and, and independence and stuff. Very cool. Yes. So why is she so associated with New Mexico? Because she's ghost strange. <laughs> well, in 1929, she went on a trip to northern New Mexico and completely fell in love with the architecture, the <clears throat> landscapes, and the culture of like the mix between Native Americans and like Hispanic. I, I would culture. say it's, it's mm-hmm. nearly the anti-Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So just being so new and fresh for her would be mm-hmm. well, a nice draw. And I, th- I think, too, at this time, it's still kind of the Wild West. Yeah. Like, I mean, in the 20s, yeah. In, in 2022, it's a little bit like the Wild West. <laughs> yeah. But, like, mm-hmm. that, yeah, that's just not a, like, it's a new world. It is. All right. So she's in love with the culture and she starts to refer to it as the far away, which I think goes to what we were just saying. Like, it's this faraway, dreamy yeah. place. And this produced even more iconic paintings where she switches more to, like, the landscapes. Throughout the 1940s, she has shows all over the country, including her alma mater of the Art Institute of Chicago and the MoMA. And she was the first featured female artist of the MoMA, wow. which is pretty cool. Didn't know that. Yeah. She split her time between New York, where her husband was, and Ghost Ranch, which you mentioned earlier, near... Abiqui. <laughs> Again, the non-native New Mexican is helping me pronounce things. <laughs> um, she eventually bought, buys a second home in New Mexico Perfect. because she likes it so much. Unfortunately, her spending so much time in New Mexico meant that her husband had a lot of alone time with his minty Dorothy Norman, and they began an affair. No. He was also super old. Why can't relationships based on... An uh, affair. Uh, an affair last. Yeah. Hmm. Weird. Mm-hmm. He has a stroke in 1946, dies, and leaves her in charge of his estate. Oh, that's nice. I, know, I guess. He uh, just missed Roswell. He was one year away <laughs> from the Roswell incident. Yeah, that's true. Once he died, she moved to New Mexico full time, but in the 50s and 60s, just spent 20 years like traveling the world. She paints like things in Japan and That's really cool. like other parts of the country. This is also where her her kind of last famous style of paintings. I don't know. She's also famous for her like cloud paintings. Oh. And this is cuz she spent so I, much time in the in an airplane. That's cool. I didn't know that. I I feel like I would recognize a cloud a George O'Keefe cloud painting quicker than I would a painting of her flowers. You should because at our old house in front of our desk I had a like ten little Georgia O'Keeffe paintings like oh. on our wall. <laughs> there you and go. one of them was cloud. And I, I, I don't think I said this earlier. When he, she moved to New York, she starts uh, yeah. gaining traction because of her paintings of the skyscrapers and stuff. So oh, she started cool. with skyscrapers went to florals then landscapes and now clouds mm. nature yes. skyscrapers so she's mm-hmm. she's covered it all um <laughs> um sadly uh in her older years she develops macular degeneration so it's hard to be an artist and be blind in 1972 she painted her last unassisted unassisted painting 
Um, but after that, she has assistants help her create art, which I don't really know how that works, but... Right. Speaks it into existence. And then someone else draws it. Yeah. Yeah. Red circle. Redder. Much redder. How does she know? <laughs> yeah. Um, she also wrote a book called Georgia O'Keeffe in 1976. Clever. In 1977, Gerald Ford, President Gerald Ford, presented her with the Medal of Freedom. She died March 6, 1986 in Santa Fe, New Mexico at 98. Wow. Very yeah. Wow. Her ashes were scattered in Cerro Perdinal, which she had painted multiple times. Um, and there, as I mentioned before, is now a museum dedicated to her and her life and her art. Um, it's absolutely beautiful. I think my mom and I spent like four hours there just walking around. Yeah. And yeah, it's well done. So if you're ever in Santa Fe... I put that on the list. I don't see why I would ever go to New Mexico. <laughs> There's a again. I brought like little tiny prints of yes. florals and stuff. Now, now that you mentioned that, I do remember all yeah. of the, they're yeah. in our basement right now. Yeah. 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 The only reason we don't have them hanging up is because it's hard to hang stuff on our brick walls. Brick. Mm, yeah. But um, yeah, I had a little. I don't want to say shrine. The little nod to Georgia. At Definitely. Our, at our old. Our old place. And Georgia's great because she loves New Mexico, paints New Mexico. But her name is Georgia. And that's mm -hmm. where I was born. So New Mexico mm -hmm. and Georgia. And she was born in Wisconsin. Wisconsin. And she was born in Wisconsin. So she yeah. just really yeah. covers she ties, our relationship. Yeah, ties yeah. our marriage together, really. Yeah. yeah. She created over 200 paintings of flowers alone and over 1,000 oh, wow. pieces of art throughout her lifetime. Her painting, Jimson Weed slash White Flower Number 1, Sold for $44.4 million in 2014, which is her highest. Maybe I should get into painting. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, you have to die. Yeah. Oh, okay. You also have to be the, the father of some type of mm -hmm. movement. Yeah. And it did say, too, her paintings range from $5 to $44.4 million. Wow. So. Oh, okay. Big range. So, mm -hmm. so the ones that you hung up were the $5 ones. <laughs> <laughs> they were probably copies of the $5 yeah, yeah, ones. Yeah. <laughs> um, they were 350 Yeah. So she won a lot of rewards that I, I didn't mention. Um, obviously did amazing things throughout her life. Um, this is a very watered down version, but she's just a cool lady. Yeah, yeah and that's cool. I do, I do want to speak on that. Like I also kind of barely touched on the Roswell incident and I go back and forth whether I wanted to be so specific and, and name every person that was involved and every date. But I feel like the Cliff Notes version is more accessible. Mm -hmm. Like you can read all of those things on Wikipedia, right? You can find them in a book. You can do whatever you want if you're interested in that. But like what we're trying to do here is trying to give you just an ex a fun explanation. A pithy little explanation. Yeah. So I think it's very good, Brooke Cox. All right. What is the only religious military unit in United States history? And I mean ever. Wow. From all wars, from all eras, since the U.S.'s inception, there's only been one military unit comprised solely of one religious sect in the United States. And that unit even had the religion's name in the unit's name. Or, another question, but the same answer. <laughs> what is the name of the U.S. military unit that has been given the distinction of participating in the longest infantry march in world history? Not knowing the answer, I would have guessed maybe the Freemasons. I don't know if they're very religious. Like, they're not like a specific religion. Mm-hmm. But that would be my guess. But knowing the answer, it is the Mormon Battalion. The Mormon Battalion. <laughs> Mormon Battalion. Um, 
So, I guess for your listeners, the three of us were raised in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or Mormons. Yes. Correct. Yeah. But I wasn't really taught about the Mormon Battalion. I don't remember learning about it. I mean, I didn't attend much seminary, but <laughs> I do not remember learning about it. I remember a little bit, but yeah, it's not... First time... It's not like yeah. studied in, on Sunday or anything Yeah, like no, no. First time I ever heard of it was during Trek, which for people that are not members of our church, it's it sounds a little ridiculous. We dress up wearing like pioneers. traditional yeah, pioneer clothes and we go out for a week and camp. And mm. pull a... We pull a hand cart, yeah. And not eat good food. And, and eat terrible food. Yeah, I did not do that. No, I, we, I did not do that. There was a day where all of the men had to go together because we had a company of, you know, maybe 15 or so uh, boys and girls. So 30. Kills uh, and skin a deer. <laughs> all the men would go together, leave all the hand carts and just walk for the day. And all the women would have to pull all the hand carts and do all the other chores and stuff. And it was to replicate the Mormon Battalion. All, oh. the, all the men were gone, so all the women had to, yeah, to to keep trekking west. Yeah, <laughs> it was a fun time, <laughs> and I only had to do it for like an hour. Yeah, I never did that, but hey, you know, I'm not sad that I missed out on that experience. I'll be honest. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> but way back in 2008, when I was in college at the University of Oklahoma, I wrote a 20-page paper over the Mormon Battalion, using only primary sources. Yeah, and that's about the level of effort we want to go into all of our reports. <laughs> so uh, no Wikipedia. No. Yeah. And Wikipedia was pretty small back then. Mm. That's, that's <laughs> my anti-primary source. Yeah. yeah, I mean, this was like journals, diaries, military reports, like first-hand accounts. Very so cool. it, was, it was pretty fun. It was pretty interesting. Um, some background for the conflict that would create the Mormon Battalion. In 1845, the U.S. decided that enough Americans and their slaves had entered Texas that it really should just be part of the U.S. So our government annexed it, much like Russia did with Crimea after the, our 2014 coup to overthrow the democratic-elected government of Ukraine. Oh, huh. a little topical right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but the U.S. then sent some representatives to Mexico City to visit with the Mexican president, but the president refused to see them, uh, which ticked off the U.S. government enough to send in some troops to occupy the disputed lands between the Nueces River, where Mexico said the new border was, and the Rio Grande, where the U.S. said the new border was. And we know who won that argument. Yeah. <laughs> Both of these rivers are in Texas, by the way. Uh, this military occupation by the U.S. on Mexican soil eventually spiraled out of control, which ultimately led to remembering the Alamo and our expansion of our borders all the way to the Pacific Ocean. Mm. Yes. Manifest destiny and all that. I am personally thankful that we won that illegal war and purchased that land because it holds my favorite place in the whole world, which is the American Southwest. Which is also the name of my podcast. Yes. <laughs> and website. Um, General William Tecumseh Sherman once said, quote, We had one war with Mexico to take Arizona, and we should have another to make her take it back. End quote. <laughs> I hate Sherman. It feels about correct. <laughs> yeah. I like Arizona. I like Arizona. But um, I hate Sherman. But uh, I, do, I think it's a pretty funny quote. And it reminds me of Lucille's Bluth, Lucille Bluth's... From Arrested Development. Yeah, from Arrested Development. I'd rather be... Dead in California, than alive, alive in Arizona. Arizona. <laughs> um, that's only relevant because it's part of the trek. Uh, at the same time as the war was beginning to rage, the Mormons, or members of the Church of Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints, as they like to be called now. Yes. I, I think you can just say. Okay, yeah, I'm yes. going to from now just on. Just because yeah. they yeah. were literally called the Mormons. Yeah, they called <laughs> themselves that. Yes. So Mormons 
were on their own journey of getting the heck out of the United States. Yes. Specifically Missouri. Yeah. Um, the prophet had just been martyred in jail. They'd been tarred and feathered in the streets, and the Missouri governor had recently issued the Missouri Executive Order 44. Not to be confused with Order 66. <laughs> but very similar. But very similar. <laughs> which stated that, quote, the Mormons must be treated as enemies and must be exterminated or driven from the state if necessary for the public peace, mm-hmm. end quote. I believe it was legal to kill a Mormon in or Missouri until... 79, 19? Yeah. 79? Wow. I did not know Some, that. Something super Yeah, recent. not 1879, 1979. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Or 77, one of the two. Yeah. That could be repealed any moment. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I think they repealed it. Yeah, 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 yeah. So the Mormons were camped in Iowa uh, at a place called Winter's Quarters, I believe. Uh, in 1846, when the U.S. Army came a-knocking on their covered wagons, or I guess hand cards, I don't know if they had covered wagons, uh, asking for around 300 men to help in the war effort and to fight with... Kearney's Army of the West. I have, I have heard of Kearney. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. yeah. Probably from my podcasts. Maybe. <laughs> Here's a quote from a Daniel B. Rawson, an eventual member of the battalion. Quote, I felt indignant toward the government that had suffered me to be raided and driven from my home. I made the uncouth remark that, quote, I would see them all damned and in hell. I would not enlist. On the way to the bluffs, we met President Brigham Young, Heber C. Kimball, and Willard Richards returning calling for recruits. They said the salvation of Israel depended on the raising of the army. When I heard this, my mind changed. <laughs> I felt it was my duty to go, end quote. Yeah, mind changed pretty easily. Yeah. <laughs> uh, obviously, Mr. Rawson was not alone in his opinion, and many other members of the church were hesitant to help out the government. But it was decided that the pay, the guns they'd get to keep, and the helping out of Uncle Sam would ultimately aid in the church's move to Utah. In the Salt Lake Valley, which I'm pretty sure the prophet had already decided was the destination. I'm not sure, but yeah, I'm getting some head shaking. Yes, I believe that is correct. I think there was some talk of California, but ultimately Salt Lake Valley was chosen. And the Salt Lake Valley was in Mexican territory. But even before the war with Mexico was was called and it was building up, everyone knew that America would win that that war. Yeah. And they knew ultimately that Salt Lake City was going to be in American territory pretty soon. So might as well get on the president's good side. They also knew that no one wanted it. No one wanted it. Mm -hmm. It's great Salt Lake. So that's why uh, we got it. Yeah, Yeah, we'll take it. What is that that famous quote from Brigham Young? Like, we fell from out of the pan, into the fire, and out of the fire, into the middle of the floor. And that's where we are, and that's where we will stay. (laughs) Sounds about right. We'll build it up, and we'll make it our own, something like that. Also, the President of the United States, James K. Polk, authorized all of this to, and I'm quoting him, quote, conciliate them, meaning the Mormons, attach them to our country and prevent them from taking part against us, end quote. Uh, He knew after meeting with some church leaders, I didn't know, in D.C. about the recent murders and banishments, and he was throwing the growing body of Americans and immigrants a bone. So, on July 20th, the newly created Mormon battalion and its 543 men, 33 women, and 51 children, which I think is hilarious. 51 yeah. children, let's go to war. They left Council Bluffs, Iowa, for Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. The then prophet and leader of the church, Brigham Young, you may have heard of him, he prophesied, prophesied, I always say prophesized, which is not a word, <laughs> prophesied. That's the, that's the Georgian coming out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that no member of the Mormon battalion would die due to hostile action. That's a bold claim for a group of soldiers who are about to enter hostile territory during a war. But his prophecy would ultimately prove true. Although that doesn't mean no one would die. And only 28 miles into the journey, 
So just down the road a bit. Yeah. Yeah. A Samuel Bowley would meet his maker. Oh, no. I know. I'm not sure what, what he died from. I could not find that yeah. out. Or how old he was or anything. Interesting. Wow. It's a bummer. It's not funny. Yeah. I'm not laughing. <laughs> it's a bummer. <laughs> Ultimately, 22 members of the battalion would die, but like Yun called it, none from battle. All from just disease. Yeah. The only battle they fought is now known as the Battle of the Bulls. And it was fought against a sizable number of cattle in Arizona. (laughs) (laughs) They apparently rolled into a pasture and the curious cattle somehow killed some mules, destroyed some carts, and injured two men. I think they bored one dude like in the... Wow. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like they were the aggressors, so... Yeah, they were. So, they loaded their rifles and mowed them down. (laughs) Now, I saw a number anywhere from 10 to 100. So, I don't know how many they killed. Wow. But apparently they killed some bulls. Yeah. 10 is a lot. Yeah, they so. had steak for a long time. Yeah, <laughs> yep, yep. You guys know what the Great Emu War of 1932 in Australia is? We do know the Great <laughs> Emu War. Uh, Reminded yeah. me of that a little bit. Yeah. For those who don't know, you should look it up. But spoiler: the emus win. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but the the cattle don't. I don't think they won this battle. No. Uh, from Kansas. Fort Leavenworth. From Kansas, the troops began a long march to Santa Fe under the leadership of a dictatorial lieutenant, Andrew Jackson Smith. He is not referred to kindly by the members of the battalion during this time. Under him, they suffered from heat stroke, lack of food, improper medical treatment, and the entire thing was pretty much one long forced march. Thankfully, though, in Santa Fe, A.J. Smith was relieved of duty and a lieutenant, Colonel Cook, took over. When the battalion arrived in Santa Fe, interestingly enough, they were given a 100-gun Salute, which is, I guess, they just fire 100 rounds into the air. Yeah. Yeah. The the, the army that was already there. The other troops. Oh, that's nice. Not the warm battalion. Yeah, that's nice. <laughs> yeah. We're here, The army of the West. <laughs> yeah. yeah. They were glad to see him, apparently. They made it there in good time. They'd already marched a 1,000 miles by this point. That's... From Iowa through Missouri to Kansas. Where they Kansas. could be killed. Yeah. Where they could be killed, they had to march back through Missouri. But well, apparently but they were... mob would attack 500 armed men. Yeah. And apparently the Missourians treated him fine, like marched with him on the street, okay. gave him like food and stuff. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I guess one leader's views doesn't necessarily equate to the yeah. entire population. Maybe yeah. enough time had gone by. Yeah. Maybe enough years. I don't remember the timeline. I know this is 46 now. Yeah. Well, but, how, um, how often do we agree with our uh, leaders? Yeah, leaders. <laughs> yeah. Um, True. Never. <laughs> uh, in Santa Fe, they would now be split into two with one group remaining in the area and the other group marching on to California. The first group that remained uh, contained the sick members of the party and many of the women, almost all the women, and all the children, I believe. And they would go to, uh, to Salt Lake with Young. The California group had a lot of journey left. I think they're 300 now, as opposed to the 500. They traveled through Arizona into Mexican territory, across the Continental Divide, over the Colorado River, and eventually into California. Uh, they'd reached San Diego on January 29th, 1847 where Lieutenant Colonel Cook would say, quote, History may be searched in vain for an equal march of infantry. Half of it has been through a wilderness where nothing but savages and wild beasts are found, or deserts where, for lack of water, there is no living creature. End quote. I remember reading these men's journals and how often they would complain that every single thing in the desert has spikes and wants to kill or maim you. <laughs> it was a constant observation and complaint in almost everyone's journals. I had another. I wrote another paper over the Mexican-American War, just from average Americans going down, mm-hmm. like from Kentucky or Ohio or New York going down to Mexico, 
And they were like, this is the worst place in the world. I don't know why we're fighting this war. I, I mean, I like the Southwest, but everyone always complains about how spiky it is. Yeah. Everything just has spikes on it. From the cactus to the grass. Um, it's, a, it's a tough world. Yeah, it is. It is. A John D. Lee would say that they would strain, quote, water through their teeth to keep back the live as well as the dead insects and mud from being swallowed by wholesale. And after quenching their wow. thirst, they filled their canteens out of the tracks of the oxen and mules, end quote. Horrible. Yeah. Thirst and the quenching of that thirst was the ever-present enemy of the battalion. They would suck water out of the cracks of rocks using quills. They'd lap up water from puddles like dogs. Lieutenant Colonel Cook would later say, quote, any other company under like circumstances would have mutinized, end quote. Wow. But it appears the men's incredible faith in God and their prophet kept them going. And in surprisingly high spirits. Uh, there were many mentions of, from other people who saw them. were like, how are you guys in such high spirits? You don't got shoes. Your clothes are yeah, wow. tattered. You're all sunburned. You all... Yeah, they look pretty bad, apparently. You're <laughs> drinking rocks. Yeah, exactly. At one point before taking the town of Tucson, the battalion did almost see battle, but the Mexican soldiers retreated at the side of 300 armed Anglos. And later in California, in Temecula, the battalion would stand guard over a group of Luiseno Indians who were burying their dead after a massacre perpetrated by the Mexican forces that were fleeing. So there were a few, there were a few close calls, but again, no battle and no deaths from battle, which is surprising. Now I'll wrap up this important and little-known piece of American and Southwestern history by summing up the amazing accomplishments of the battalion. Firstly, the battalion built the first American courthouse in California in San Diego. They built a <laughs> fort in Los Angeles, which was just a couple of Pueblos. Like, not even Pueblos, not, not like you know, Mexican Pueblos, but just like um, Mexican, Spanish-style big houses. Just yeah. a couple of those, and that was it. We should go back to that. Yeah. For Los Angeles. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, they built homes, post offices, schoolhouses, and mills, including Sutter's Mill, which is where gold was discovered in 1849, yeah. a few years later, which would usher in the gold rush, and six of the top battalion members <clears throat> who had re-enlisted were at Sutter's Mill when the gold was actually found. Wow, they got the gold touch. Mm-hmm. In 2000, at the Utah State Capitol, then member of the Presidency of the Seventy, which is a ruling body of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, mm-hmm. Elder Marlon K. Jensen said of the battalion, quote, A road was carved out of the southwestern wilderness. The Gadsden Purchase of land in 1853 from Mexico, which became part of New Mexico and Arizona, was accomplished. The acquisition of California certainly was stabilized and probably facilitated more than by any other single group of people or single act. And an economic impact was felt, not just in California with the gold rush, but in Utah as well for many, many years, end quote. And Laura Anderson, the executive director historian of research at the Mormon Battalion Association, said, quote, The Mormon Battalion opened both the southern route and the route across Carson Pass and several other different routes. Most of the highways in the southwest United States, I mean east to west, are over routes that the Mormon Battalion opened for wagon roads, end quote. This includes wow. the modern I-15 from L.A. to Salt Lake. Wow. I was about to say, are there any interstates? But yeah, yep. that's really cool. During the trek, members of the battalion would learn irrigation techniques from the local Native Americans and bring them back to Utah, where they were then spread across the Southwest, even further as they colonized my favorite area of the country, Colorado Plateau. The entire Southwest portion of the United States is especially owes an immense debt to the church and the battalion. There are a ton of monuments around the Southwest, well, even in, the, in like in Iowa, Missouri. Yeah. Uh, I saw one on the highway near Santa Fe. Uh, I was driving, and I was like, what is that monument? 
And so I pulled over, and then I went. I mean, it was it was a Mormon time monument. I was like, oh, I didn't know that's that. really that's cool. cool. So I took pictures of it. They're they're boring pictures. <laughs> um, a final thought on the battalion, just yes. real quick. I don't know how these guys did it, but about thirty of the members, after being discharged, marched from California, all the way back to Iowa, before realizing their families and friends were in Salt Lake. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They would eventually themselves make it uh, back to the valley. Uh, so it was a very long march for all involved, and one of the longest marches in military history at around 2,000 miles. But for those dudes, it was the march that kept on giving. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is, that is my Mormon battalion. Very, very report. cool. Wow. I was going to do an episode on it <clears throat> in my own podcast, but not anymore. I will just refer huh? to this one. Oh, would this awesome. be... Or I'll just quote that. <laughs> <laughs> Would this be an American Southwest like episode three point five then? Yeah, it would just be a supplement. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Mm-hmm. We did it. There was a there was a rich dude in D.C. who wasn't a member but was friends with him, mm-hmm. and the president was like, "Yeah, we'll give these guys a bone because we know what happened to him in Missouri and Illinois, and we don't want them to grow some colony out there that's going to like fight us." Which you know the army invaded Utah anyways in the eighteen eighties. Yeah, they yeah. they still yeah. and overthrew the the very tense for a while. <laughs> yeah. And occupied, actually, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, I just want to say, like, the Southwest is a very magical place. Like, mm-hmm. I didn't really visit for the longest time, mm-hmm. and it just got built up to be this this amazing, yeah. Like how Georgia O'Keeffe said, like Wonderland, this amazing mm-hmm. place. Um, it is. It truly is, especially yeah. if you like red rocks. Especially yeah. and good food and good food, green chili, mm-hmm. yeah. everything it is so. Beautiful. I'm getting a Blake's lot of burger. Ooh. And Blake's green chili breakfast burrito. I was going to say, you have to get the breakfast burrito. The breakfast burrito is so good. Yeah. All right. So, thank you so much for listening uh, to end of this episode. We're going right, to roll a die. Thomas is going to roll a die. What is the singular of die? Isn't it just dice? Die. Die. It's singular. Dice there is are, plural. Look at all these dice I have. This is my die. My favorite die. Hmm. I didn't know that. Okay. So, if you roll a three. I rolled a two. Okay, entertainment. Yay. Next week we will be nice. doing entertainment. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. thanks for. Yeah, and thanks for sticking with my theme here. That was great. Yeah, <laughs> Brooke's idea. That, that was, was very good. fun. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, I still think it's fun that your favorite state is where I'm from. Yeah. Which is not my favorite state. <laughs> I think Utah is becoming my favorite state. Okay. Yeah. Especially southern. Well, mostly southern. Yeah, Utah. Su- southern. Southern Utah. Utah. Northern like... New Mexico. Yeah, <laughs> New Mexico's great. Yeah. What was it Northwest New Mexico, Southwest Utah? Pretty much the same place. Four corners. Southeast Utah. Correct. Southeast Utah. <laughs> yeah, that's not the prettiest. Four corner area is not the prettiest. No. no. It, really, Red Mesa, and mm-hmm. it's just not pretty over there. The poor Navajos. But the Cortez, or Cortez in uh, Sleeping Ute Mountain, I love those places. I like Cortez. Yeah, I just ate lunch there with my wife last week. Oh. Yeah. I get around. <laughs> Your wife of last week. Of last week. I believe it was two days after we were married. Wow. <laughs> That's we, really cool. Yeah, we ate uh, in Cortez. Walked around. You could have said hi to my parents. I could. Well, yeah, they were on the other side of the border. Yeah, I mean, you could cross it. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> we did. <laughs> yeah, we drove from Utah to Arizona to New Mexico to Colorado. And yes. then back to Utah. Perfect. Okay. Well, thank you so much for listening. We're excited to do entertainment next week. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Hello again, everybody. This is just Sean popping in at the end by himself to say you should definitely go check out Thomas Wayne Riley's podcast, The American Southwest. We didn't do a good job of explaining 
what it is and how great it is. If you like audio essays about part of the American country, then that's the place to do it. He also has great photos and everything on his website. If you're a fan of Dan Carlin, Dan Carlin's Hardcore History, then you would love the American Southwest. And I also want to say real quick, if you have any recommendations or anything you want to say to us, please email us at trivialconpod, C-O-N-P-O-D, at gmail.com. All right, so thanks again for listening, and goodbye.